Years ago, I had, it was the very first time that I was ever going to read an academic paper at an academic conference. So it was a big deal to me, not to anybody else. But they let me read the paper on the Saturday because in this particular conference, most people left on Friday night. And so there were very few people there on Saturday. I was the last paper of the last thing of the conference. I read it. I walk out and there was a professor from the school I was then attending working on my PhD. His name was Dr. Paul Feinberg. He's sitting out in the lobby. This particular conference was called Evangelical Theological Society. It was in Jackson, Mississippi. And then on Saturday afternoon, another conference called the Society of Biblical Literature started in New Orleans. So we had rented a car. We were going to drive from Jackson to New Orleans. We see Dr. Feinberg sitting out in the lobby by himself. And Dr. Feinberg, one of his eccentricities out of many was that he always talked really, really loud. We called him the boomer. But it was always like, hey, Stan! That, it was always that. So he's sitting out in the lobby and I say, uh, Dr. Feinberg, you going to SBL? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm getting ready to go. I said, well, um, how are you getting there? And he looks at me and says, how far is it? What's well, New Orleans. Is that far? Yeah, it's, it's a ways. So, you know, we say, you can ride with us. It'll be great. And so he, he, we get him to ride with us. And as we're going, we say, now, which hotel are you staying in for the Society of Biblical Literature, for SBL? Which hotel are you staying in? And he said, is there more than one in New Orleans? Yeah, there is. And so he named this guy that he was supposed to be staying with but he didn't know what hotel. We get to a hotel that where we were staying and that guy was happened to be staying there too. He goes to the desk and says, I'm supposed to stay with Francis Beckwith, Frank Beckwith. And the, the person at the desk says, we don't have any record of that, sir. I'm sorry, we can't let you in. So he said, hey, you mind if I stay with you guys? No, that'll be great, Dr. Feinberg. We would love that. Uh, that's kind of the way he went through life, just sort of, whatever, it'll all work out in the end. So he did stay with us, and he had this really bad hairpiece, like one of the worst hairpieces in evangelicalism. It was really bad. But in the room that night, he says to me, he just like jerks the thing off, sits it on the table, and it's sitting there like a, like a, you know, like a dead animal. And... He says to me, Sam, you ought to get yourself one of these. It keeps your head warm in the winter. And I said, I think I'll just go with a hat, if you don't mind. But then, you know, I, I knew a little bit about Dr. Feinberg, but not a lot. And so we sat there. He took my friend and I out to dinner. We were students. We didn't have a lot. He paid for our dinner. He's just a wonderful, kind man. And he started to tell us about his own life. He was Jewish. He taught systematic theology at Trinity Evangelical Theology School. His father, Charles Feinberg, had been a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. And his father had grown up in a very strict Jewish household. But they had had uh, a wonderful woman whom they hired to come in on the Sabbath. If you've ever been around like strict Orthodox Jewish people, you know, they're not allowed to even turn a light on on the Sabbath. So they hire somebody to come and do that for them turn on the stove, turn on the light, stuff like that. And this wonderful Christian woman had, by her attitude and by the sort of things that she said, she had told Charles Feinberg, my friend Paul's father, about 
Christianity. And eventually, just before he's going to go into rabbinic school to study to be a rabbi, he became a Christian. And it was an amazing thing to me that day to think about, here's Paul Feinberg, a Jewish man with roots all the way back to Abraham, and yet God in his great and wonderful mercy is still saving his people, both his Jewish people and his church people. And today we want to read a passage from Romans chapter 11 in which Paul tells us something about what God is doing for his people. And Paul is telling us one of the most famous statements in Romans. He says to us, all Israel shall be saved. And that's a, that's a complex statement because we think about what does that mean? All Israel shall be saved. Does that mean every person who's Jewish? Does that mean everyone? What exactly does that mean? And so we'll read together this passage starting in verse 25, and we will begin to see what it is that Paul has to say to those to whom he was writing 2,000 years ago and to us today. This is Romans 11, verse 25. If you don't have a scripture, you can read it up here, or if you want to read it in the Pew Bible, it's on page um, 947. So this is Romans 11:25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, Israel, all Israel, will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now you have received mercy because of their disobedience. For they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So what is it that Paul wants us to understand in this passage today? One of the things that I, I try to teach my students is that when we're looking at a passage, particularly a complex passage, look very carefully. Read it through very, very slowly. In the seminary, they learn to read Greek and they learn to read Hebrew. And often reading the text in Greek makes it clearer. It didn't so much in this particular case. It's still very complex. But what's going on here, there's something that Paul is saying in this paragraph that he wants for all of us to know. And it's in that 25th verse. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware. In literally, it, 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 could, it could be translated literally something like, I don't want you to not know, which is a double negative in English and it doesn't exactly work. But essentially what Paul is saying is, I'm telling you this, don't forget it. Whatever you do, don't forget it. What is it that Paul wants us not to forget today? I think that there are three things. And again, I teach my students to look at the text and look at words. And I say to them, look for unusual words 
and look for repeated words because those are the sort of things that will help us to understand what Paul wants us to know. And so there are three things that Paul wants us to make sure that we don't forget. One, an unusual word, and two repeated words in this, in this passage. The first thing that Paul says, don't forget, is don't forget the mystery. You notice in verse 25, he says, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery. Mystery is an unusual word in the New Testament. A very unusual word. In, in our culture today, if someone were to use the term mystery, the vast majority of us would think of it as a section in the bookstore. You go to Barnes & Noble, you ask them where the mystery section is, you go there and you read about crazy things that are happening or happening in someone's mind. That's not what mystery means here. Mystery doesn't mean, and this is significant, mystery doesn't mean mystery religions. Now, at this time, in the first century and the second century, there were, in the world around Paul, a certain number of strange kind of religions called mystery religions. And what it was, you, you could join the mystery religions, you went through this sort of secret uh, kind of initiation, and you knew certain things that nobody else knew. That was called knowing the mystery. Right? You went in, they gave you these secret words that you could know, they gave you this secret way of getting into the, wherever they were meeting, basically like a 12-year-old boy's treehouse. It's the same thing. There, you know, you secret word to get in, secret passage to get in, it's all that. And some have argued that Paul was somehow wrapped up in the mystery of religions and that he's saying here, and in Ephesians and in Corinthians where he uses this word, he's saying Christianity is one of those mystery religions. Significant that we remember that's not what's going on here. Paul is not saying that. Paul is using the term mystery not against the background of the mystery religions, but he's saying to us that a mystery is an unknown secret. He's using the term mystery not against the background of the mystery religions, but against the background of the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. This word mysterion, it's the same, basically the same word in Greek as it is in English. This word means a special secret. And even more significant than that, it's a special secret that no one can get to on their own. I mean, if you read a mystery book, if it's not so, such a good book, you can figure out what's going on at the end by the time you're halfway through. If it's a really good book, it takes you longer to figure out what's going on. But the use of the term mysterion in the Hebrew Bible, in the Septuagint, and in the Dead Sea Scrolls means something entirely different. It means something that God knows and planned that can never be figured out by anybody else. So the great mystery of the world, Paul says, and he lays this out in Ephesians, the great mystery of the world is that God, from the foundation of the world, planned to send his son as a human being in flesh, and that son would die the most terrible death known to man at that time for our salvation. No one anticipated that. All of those, or most of those who were looking for the Messiah 
at the time of Christ during the Second Temple period, they expected the Messiah to be a great military figure. They thought the Messiah would come. He would overthrow the Roman government. He would build a great army among Israel. And they would be like they were in the time of David, a great and powerful land. And that's the reason that when John the Baptist baptizes Jesus, he said, Behold the, son, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's highly unlikely, almost certainly not the case, that John the Baptist recognized that Jesus was going to die and thus take away the sin of the world. He didn't think about the sacrificial lamb. The Baptist more than likely knew about another kind of lamb from Second Temple Judaism. It was a, an apocalyptic lamb. It had like knives for teeth. It was a vicious lamb. And they, that lamb came and took away the sin of the world by killing all the sinners. That was the kind of messianic expectation that many in Judaism had. And so when Jesus came and he took on flesh and he didn't destroy the Roman government, he didn't raise up an army, he didn't do any of those things, and finally John the Baptist gets arrested and he's in prison, you remember that he sends one of his people and he says, are you the one that's coming or should we wait for somebody else? He's asking Jesus, I don't know if you're the Messiah or not because you're not doing any things that I expected. That's the mystery. The great mystery of the world is that God sends his only son in the flesh and he dies to give us salvation. No one expected that. No one could have figured that out. It's one of the things I think that make, should make us careful about biblical prophecy. You find a lot of people who are really, really, really certain about biblical prophecy. And my thinking is, if John the Baptist couldn't figure out what Jesus' coming was all about on the first time, it's highly unlikely that I'm going to be able to do it on the second time. We all ought to know that there's some great and wonderful coming of the Lord, and it's going to probably be better than we could have ever expected. That's the great mystery. And so Paul tells us, first of all, don't forget the mystery. But then he moves on to tell us something else. There's a second word in this passage. This word occurs four times. He tells us, don't forget the misbehavior. And you'll notice it in verse 30 and 31 and 32. The word is disobedient. You'll see it that he talks about you, the Gentiles, and Israel. You were disobedient. You had done things that you shouldn't have. You were sinful. That is why Paul, at the very, toward the beginning of this book in chapter 3, he lays out this, this foundational truth that all of us have sinned. All of us have done what we shouldn't have. None of us deserve the grace of God. We're all worse than we could have ever thought. The only way that we feel good about ourselves is by comparing ourselves to someone else, right? We might say to ourselves, well, you know, compared to Ted Bundy, I'm not so bad. But if we compare ourselves to the perfect law that God sets out for us, we realize that we are bad. We're terrible. We're not what we ought to be. We are all sinful. We all do what we shouldn't. Uh, back in the day, on Sunday night, we used to have uh, children's sermons on these steps. All the kids would come down, and a lot of times me or someone else would do a children's sermon because I was a juggler and, you know, ventriloquist, um, which means I talk to myself and play with dolls. I would bring one of the dolls with me 
to church and, you know, do the children's sermon for the kids. And one time I had this great idea of a magic trick that I could do. And so I had this idea. I, had, I handed out to all the kids this 4 by 6 card, all the ones that could write, 4 by 6 card and a pen. And I said, I want you to write down on there some sin that you've committed. And if you can't think of some sin that you've committed, just write one from your parents. It didn't go well. Uh, that was one of the worst children's sermons in the history of this church, I think. But it, it also reminded all of us that we may not want to write our sin down on a card. We all want to hide it. But in our most introspective moments, we know it's there. We dress up and act like we have it all together on Sunday. But deep inside, we know that we don't. We're all in a lot of trouble. We're all misbehaving creatures who when God tells us this is what you should do, it's for your own good, it's for the best, obey these laws, we do things our own way. And Paul is saying to all of us today, and all of those who have read this book of Romans for the last 2,000 years, he is saying to us that the news of the gospel on the one hand is bad. The bad news is that we've all, we're all worse than we thought. I can stand up here and wear the robe and stand under this and act like I'm the guy who knows something about the book of Romans and you might believe me and act like I've got it all together. I don't. Let's face it. If you knew everything about me, you probably wouldn't want to listen to me. But if I knew everything about you, I might not want to speak to you. So it's relatively easy. It's even for us. Paul is saying to us, we've done things wrong. Remember that. Disobedience in this passage is reminding us that we've done things wrong. But there's a third thing that Paul wants us to remember. Again, the word is used four times in this short paragraph. And in this case, we ought not to forget the mystery. We ought not to forget the misbehavior, and we ought not to forget the mercy. You notice that Paul again says in verses 30 and 31 and 32, he talks to us, you have received mercy, the mercy of God. And down through the history of the world, from the very creation of the world all the way down to today, we know that God is a God of mercy. Mercy, he doesn't give us what we deserve. We don't want to pray and ask God to give us what we deserve. It's a very, very dangerous thing. Remember that when you pray the Lord's Prayer, you say, essentially, treat me the way that I treat other people. Forgive us our debts the way that we forgive others. We're essentially saying to God, I want you to forgive me the way that I forgive other people. That's a serious Thing to say. And Paul is saying to us here that he has for us. God has given us mercy. There is mercy to the Gentiles. You notice it in verse 30 and 31. You may receive mercy that you are the Gentiles. 
Then he also tells us about mercy to the Jewish people, that even though they have been disobedient, they also, God, will give them mercy. And we get to that thinking about that statement that he tells us up toward the beginning of the, of the paragraph, all Israel shall be saved. What exactly does that mean? There are a variety of ideas about what it might mean. There are some who will say every person who's Jewish is automatically a member of the kingdom of God no matter what they do. That, I think, is not what Paul is saying here for a variety of reasons that I won't get into now. But there are others who will say this Israel really is about the Jewish people. And when Paul says all Israel shall be saved, what he means is that there's coming a time when there will be a great revival of the follower of, followers of Christ among Jewish people. That is, there will be a great revival of Christianity in ethnic Judaism. Not everybody thinks that's the case, but I, I think that is the case. That sooner or later, there will come a time when God will draw a lot of ethnic Jewish people toward himself. And they will realize that they come to God not because they have followed the law. That we come to God not because we have followed the law. We come to God not because we're good. Not because we could ever, ever stand before God and say, I think that I've done enough good that I ought to be allowed into the kingdom of heaven. No. Because remember, the bad news is that we're worse than we thought. But there's good news on the other side. And the good news is that God loves us anyway. That's the mercy of God through his son, Jesus Christ. That he, in the midst of whatever problems it is that we are going through, whatever sin that we've committed, whatever wrong that we have done, he is still faithful to us. And from the very beginning of the story of his people, Moses leads the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh chases them with his army and they're standing in front of the Red Sea. And they are about to be killed by Pharaoh's army. God shows up and he takes care of them in his mercy. He opens the Red Sea. They go across and they are saved. Then after they wander around for 40 years, Joshua takes over Moses' job. He leads them into the Promised Land. And they stand there, standing in front of the Jordan River, as great a problem as the Red Sea. They need to get across it. And God says to them, I will dry up the Red Sea. You will walk across it. And I want you, each of the 12 tribes, to pick up a stone and take them to the other side of the River Jordan and pile those stones up so that when little children ask you, what does that stone mean? You will be able to say, that was the day God was faithful to us. We can all think of these piles of stones in our own life, these times when we remember that God is faithful. And we can realize that if God has been faithful to us in the past, then we can remember that he will be faithful to us in the future. We've all, probably at one time or another, had these times in our life when we felt like everything had, that could go wrong had gone wrong. For me, it was when I was I, about 22 or 23. 
and my mother had died about eight or nine months earlier. We were working at a church where my father was the pastor, and we lived in the uh, parsonage. I tell my students now, don't ever live in a parsonage, no matter what. Our parsonage was a little tiny sort of a shotgun house. It had hot and cold running rats and no air conditioning, no heat. And then we found out that week that my wife, Cindy, was pregnant. And then a few days later, my father died. And I remember it was like on a Friday night, Cindy was pregnant. We didn't have insurance because the church couldn't get us a nice house. They certainly couldn't get us insurance. And we didn't have much of anything. And we're there in that old house on Friday night. We're sleeping in bed. I'm wondering how I'm going to pay for this child. There's a lot of pressure. My father died. Now I'm going to have to try to keep the church together. All these things. And then all of a sudden we hear this incredible crash. And I'm like, what is going on? like one o'clock in the morning. I look out of my bedroom and I see two car headlights in the living room. That's really not where they're supposed to be. And what had happened was a guy, there may have been alcohol involved, I don't know, but he was driving, missed the stop sign and ran into the front of our house, knocked the whole front of the house down. And the police came and the, um, the wrecker came and, and towed his car away. And so there was just no front of the house anymore. And we stayed there for like another two weeks. I don't know what we were thinking. No front on the house. You couldn't lock the door because there wasn't any door. It was just... So every time that we both left, we'd come back and something would be gone. Like the TV would be stolen or whatever. Because I guess people figured, hey, it's free game. There's no, no front on the house. The next week, I remember Cindy had gone to some event with the women of the church, and I had stayed there at the house to try to keep as much of our stuff unstolen as I could. And I was sitting there by myself, and I just thought, this is just awful. We're about to have a child, and I don't have insurance or money. My father died, so now I've got to be the one to try to pastor the church, and I don't know what I'm doing. My mother's gone, so she can't help me what I'm supposed to do when we get this little human being. And I'm just sitting there saying, this is not what I signed up for. When I decided that I wanted to be a minister and follow the call of God, that's not what I wanted. I expected to at least have a house with a door. That's not asking too much. And I remember it was as if God spoke to me. He, I'm not saying he did because we're Presbyterians. And, but it, it, was, it was almost like that. He said, do you trust me? And that's ultimately the, the, the real question that all of us come to church with, isn't it? Do we trust him? Do we come here and we gather together and we realize that we're worse than we thought? And we also realize that God has told us that he loves us anyway. Do we trust him?
to take care of us. And a little while after that, we, we were able to move to a different house that had a door. And we were able to have my daughter, Charity, and uh, we paid a little at a time so that she wouldn't get repossessed. And she's, she's still with us today. We, we did the best we could to take care of her, and she has grown up to be a wonderful young lady. But I still remember sitting there at that time and saying, do you trust me? If all, that you, if all that you have is me, is that enough? Do you trust me? And that's what Paul is asking the readers of Romans to remember today. That's the reason that he says that the promises of God are irrevocable. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. They will always be there. And the bad news of the gospel is that we're worse than we thought, but the good news of the gospel is that God has mercy and loves us anyway. That God never forgets us. And that knowing Him is all that we have and all that we need. He is our rock. He is the one upon whom we can cling, to whom we can cling and hold on in the worst of storms. And so today, I can remind you, whether you be from Israel or not, that our God has mercy upon those who will turn to him through Jesus Christ. And that the greatest hope that we can ever have, no matter how the events of our lives are going along, the greatest hope that we can ever have is that God is merciful and the greatest knowledge we can ever have is that we can trust him. So you came here today wondering, with all that's going on in my life, and a lot of it seems bad, can I trust him? You can. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've never known what it meant to have your sins forgiven, and to know that the great God of the universe loves you and has mercy for you. Please find someone today, one of the elders, whomever, to tell you about what a great thing that is. And walk out of here thinking that even when you don't have a door on your house, you can trust God, and that's enough.